0: Hi, this is Steve Poor and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Alex Smith, Global Product Management Lead for iManage Raven. He got his start at legal publishing giant LexisNexis where it began in online editorial work and eventually evolved his role to that of project management and platform innovation. An interest in new roles in law firms led to his time as innovation manager at Reed Smith, a global firm, where he oversaw the firm's innovation hub program that encouraged, communicated, connected, and managed a pipeline of ideas across the firm's global network. Today, he oversees the product roadmap for the search, knowledge, and AI offerings within the wider iManage experience, bringing the voice, needs, and ideas of the customer and service design. The common thread in his career journey is his fascination with search and data and the evolution of new and emerging technologies, from CD-ROM to contract management, artificial intelligence, semantic search, and linked data. As you might surmise from this description, Alex's career in many ways maps to the evolution of technology in the legal sector. Our conversation, therefore, flashes back to the early days of online legal publishing up to today's emerging technologies. We talked about his various work experiences and how he uses lawyers' penchant for talking about themselves in his work in product design. Alex has been at the core of some of the critical technology products in the legal industry. I think you'll find the conversation to be interesting and timely. Thanks for taking a listen. I am joined today by Alex Smith from iManage. Alex, thanks for joining.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, we're catching you at the evening over in London, eh?
1: Yeah, it's just getting dark as well. It's kind of the long summers are over, and we're getting into the winter time.
0: Oh, uh, uh, yeah, got to love the winter in London and Chicago, don't you?
1: <laughs> yeah, we we can't afford to turn the heating on anymore, so we blankets this uh, this winter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. Well, thanks for making uh, some time for us. Uh, You've had a most interesting career. I've been doing it a bit longer than you, but you started back when there are these things referred to as books.
1: Yeah, I was, I was, I was between books and CD-ROMs. If you remember CD-ROMs, I do remember CD-ROMs. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, I do. And now you, now you run a machine learning program, set a suite of applications for I manage based off Raven Technology.
1: Yeah, I'm now search. I think we call it search discovery extraction, classification, all of those things which go into allowing lawyers to find things.
0: Yeah. I remember when we, as I said, when I was at law school, we used to go to books and look up stuff. (laughs) So you started as a history graduate. Let's talk a little bit about your journey to the world of legal tech. You didn't start in tech, you started in publishing.
1: No, I was publishing. I I, I was one of those people that left university having done a history degree, which was a lot of fun and teaches you a lot of critical thinking and all those things, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left university and I quite liked books and I tried to get into publishing and there were like different layers of publishing. There was either very, very interesting publishing, which paid literally no money whatsoever and you like fiction publishing, Um, or there were slightly more boring areas like law and, 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 and financial services. And I ended up in law largely through doing a secondment at what was Butterworth's in those days. Which is obviously now well, was acquired by, or had already been acquired by Lexus, Nexus in those days. And yeah, I joined to do what was hot 1980s tech in um, Loose Leafs page replacement services, you know, instantaneous oh, I app, updating. Leafs. Yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, I was a loose leaf editor was my first role in legal publishing.
0: What was sort of the first big tech innovation in your in your career? Was it the move to CDs?
1: Yeah, I, I joined just after the move to CDs. so we, we had to like do the manuscript, turn it into what would have been paper. And then we had to send the files or get the typesetters to send the files to our um, Woking team, who then turned that into CD-ROMs. And so I was here around about a time when CD-ROMs then turned into what was books on screen, so kind of internet capabilities. And, and, and we saw quite huge uptake in terms of accountancies and law firms taking up the cd slash CD. Internet versions of those. We didn't have the same. I now know the history and hindsight of obviously the in the US, the Lexus side and the Thompson side was had happened 20 years before that. And we can come on to that in a minute. But you know, there was a huge uptake. I think we got like hundreds of thousands of users in a couple of years suddenly doing it. And it's largely due to the fact they could search the book. <laughs> They could run a keyword search on top of the book, and that was like groundbreaking that made it so much easier than flipping through the book or flipping through the legislation slash case law
0: yeah it it's interesting that the adoption curve went relatively quickly based on that discussion, particularly as compared to some later technologies what What did you learn about sort of the change management piece of it as you're introducing these new technologies
1: into the market it's Sometimes you're surprised. Like, I think we were surprised by how much, how quickly it got adopted. And then actually, when we then changed platforms about four years later, we were really surprised in quite a painful way about how much people relied on something they really, really wanted. I guess equally, there were some things that were in those platforms. I think it was a really innovative time. I think we ended up with like something like 80 different products within five years based on CDs followed by the online. But there were things in there which didn't get adopted, like we had a clause bank that relied on document automation that was based on encyclopedia forms and precedents and people kind of liked it but didn't overly use it and then when we had to decide whether we're going to keep it or get rid of it we got rid of it and it didn't really make a difference which is really interesting there's just these different floating ideas which were going around at the time and the things that got adopted were the ones which really triggered like can I find words in legal text and reuse it and as you said Stephen, it's better than then running through case law and going to another book called a citator book and trying to find a citator and trying to find another link. And so sometimes it was the simpler things which people utilized. I think the other, the fun one was was hyperlinks. Was being able to like we did like matching on citation patterns and you could hyperlink, so you didn't have to look up two cases. You could go into one case, find a hyperlink, and link to something else. And that was like you know we spent four or five years optimizing that, but that was truly groundbreaking in terms of saving time and didn't feel like big, but it was very technically complex.
0: Yeah, I, rem- I remember when hyperlinks came out, it was like a magic. You know, all of a sudden you you click the blue words and suddenly you're transported into a whole different world. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of, you know, we did stuff like pattern recognition, trying to work out the patterns of citations and citation validation to work out whether there was actually a link at the end of it, all of which to deliver that and and then work out how to make that constant. Um, And that was, you know, even looking now, like hyperlinks are still hugely time saving over, as you know, kind of going to the library, finding case citation one, going and finding out whether it'd been overruled and, you know, three, four hours of legal research got taken out by one or two hyperlinks.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. Now you were with LexisNexis for uh, 17 years, if I've got that right. Yeah, that's right. By the end, what was your function? What were you, what products were you working on?
1: So I, I was content for about 10 years. So kind of trying to put all these individual products onto one platform. And then around about 2010, I kind of realized there were only two places I could get a job. At that pretty moment of time, one was Lexus and the other one was Thompson, being a content <laughs> expert in legal technology. So I kind of moved into product management and then spent about seven years um, trying to do like the kind of new products. I, did, I initially did, you know, you learn your hard yards on the core product with lots of users, legal research, how to make stuff more findable. I did fuzzy search matching and type ahead projects on the big core product, but then kind of moved into customer discovery. So what do users actually want? and all those into new product development side. So touched on loads of things like document automation projects, um, findability projects. We did dynamic checklists. We were also in a a fight royale, I think you might call it, between us and practical law at the time before it got acquired by Thomson Reuters. So kind of got into the practical law space as well. So did about six, seven years of that. Probably the best parts of that were customer discovery. I did like two years of customer discovery with talking to lawyers and qualitative research and trying to understand what people's pain points were etc and then trying to build new products but there's some big dynamics involved in all of that
0: yeah absolutely talk a little bit about the customer interactions what were those discussions like were people reticent to make time for you did you have to sort of squeeze it out how difficult was it and what's the value you got out of those conversations
1: So it's actually quite interesting. It goes into probably where we'll touch on in terms of my Reed Smith time as well in in innovation. But I had all of those things thrown against me when I first started, which was, you know, GCs are very busy. Lawyers are very busy. They don't want to talk. They kind of know what they want to do, but they don't want to spend time with you. And we kind of had a long fight against people who want to do surveys or, you know, hire consultants who do those kind of big, long surveys, which say six out of 10 people like X. And what we ended up fighting for was for for, for actually kind of open discovery. So kind of very kind of open questioning based approach. Quite a lot of day in the life stuff, like what do you do as a lawyer? And what we realized was, you know, you can try and bucket and generalize things, but you realize that different people do things different ways. Different practice groups do things different ways. Different GCs do things different ways. And so we basically went out and started doing conversations with very open questions, you know, structured wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't just like what do you like? It was really really like, how do you work? How does your team work? How do you work with people? What tools do you use? Show me one of those tools. And I think, you know, we kind of hope I think we proved people wrong because it was really interesting because we had quite a lot of people. I think the record was a colleague of mine who did a three and three quarter hour interview with the person. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Mine was only two hours and ten minutes was my record. But what we found was that what was interesting was people didn't really talk about themselves that often. They didn't get a chance to talk about what annoyed them, how they worked with their team, what their actual job was, where their pain points were. And and, and we found that people actually quite like talking about it. Well, I remember we did one with a, a PSL, professional support lawyer, and, and she literally went, i don't not really sure what my role is. They pay me. And we end up almost consulting her on what her role was <laughs> and how to go back to her boss about what she should be doing. But but, but it's interesting because it is, I find it, I sometimes go for a drink and I, sometimes I will. I ask a lot of questions, but then I'll leave realizing that no one's really asked me any questions. And it's a really interesting challenge, like go and actually have a conversation with someone and don't ask any inviting questions. Don't give something straight away and see whether people actually ask about you as opposed to themselves. And it's really interesting. You can kind of leave a conversation after an entire evening going, no one asked me a question. No one asked me how I'm feeling, what I'm doing. Sounds like
0: lawyers to me.
1: (laughs) But they do actually quite like talking about themselves and they do quite like talking about how bad processes are or, you know, how crazy the system is or, you know, how they deal with, you know, they just have to deal with clients calling them. 17 times a day and they have to just pick up the phone and drop everything and you know it is interesting when you start to dig in and you realize they aren't all the same because I think people like to pigeonhole lawyers into you know an associate and all associates do this and all partners do this and they do business development it's like some of them do business development some of them don't some of them are experts what they do and others love the business development and you start to realize that you end up with different personas and you know different people Back to your original point, eventually when you want them to adopt something, you can't just make them all one thing because many of them will not engage with the thing that you want them to adopt because they aren't that person and they don't do that.
0: So you walk away from these interviews, these discussions with all sorts of information, some consistent, some inconsistent, some based on different roles, some based on different personas. What do you then do? How do you make sense of this information? And you've you've got multiple people doing it. So you all get back in a room and you begin to compare notes. How do you distill it into something that's useful for product development?
1: You touched on it. One's personas. And there's quite a big piece in like product development between two, two kind of thoughts. One is persona-based tasks and what people do and, and, and who you're going to aim for. You know, sometimes you might leave a persona aside and go, I can't deal with that partner in high finance. They're just amazing. They just do stuff and make a ton of money and they're not going to be helped by efficiency and tools and technology. What you're going to go in is going, look, here are the real estate lawyers and they are hugely pressurized on costs. And so these people are going to be the people who are going to adopt that. And you say, look, the finance guy can go off and do whatever they want. Like they're going to make money, whatever. Let's focus on these people. So you kind of got a focus is one. The other one is like what jobs get done. There's quite a big thing called jobs to be done. And it's kind of like, well, what jobs do these users need to do? And then you kind of start going, here's the personas, here's the jobs. And then you start going, which ones can we actually help? And which ones should we leave aside and go, look, I'd love to process out the entire world, but it's not going to (laughs) happen. Let's focus in on this area. And this is an area which is ripe for adoption, to your point, to adoption and, and technology and change and process and people will actually maybe embrace it. So some some part of it is trying to conceptualize it into different concepts and, and then some part of it is who are you gonna drop, which concepts you drop. Look, you could build something awesome for it, but it's not gonna change anything. It's not gonna change the world, it's not gonna change the profitability of the partnership, it's not gonna change, you know, people's happiness with their with their jobs or whatever it may be. And then you end up focusing in on four or five things which are going to have material impact. And material can mean different things, right? It could mean the bottom line, or it could mean happiness. It could mean retention of staff, but whatever your outcome is, you can then really focus on something. And it's also something which has commonality because when you build a product, you don't want to build a custom solution for each individual. You want to build a product. And so you're looking for things which have commonality, which have genuine impact on whatever you're trying to achieve, whether it be profitability or user happiness or whatever it might be as your goal. And now you're building a product where I think you know what i learned from some of the, the time at the law firm was people chase a custom solution for one partner or one client and it's not repeatable and so you end up building something very custom that isn't then repeatable and as a product person you want to make it you're building something that's productizable it's kind of in the name but that's important otherwise you end up building a lot of custom solutions many of which fail and you don't end up with something common and that's a tech led tech led approach ends up that route the let's talk to people and try and balance and work out where commonality and not commonality is is the core
0: Uh, you spent a lot of time i want to talk about reed smith here in a second but you spent a lot of time working for large organizations developing tech and i know there's a lot of buzz in the legal tech world about the various startups and being more nimble i assume there are advantages and disadvantages to being in a in a large organization you've got more resources but the organization is more difficult Talk a little bit about that dynamic as compared to a startup.
1: I think the startup thing can be very, very hyper focused, right? There's kind of one, if you take one of those jobs to be done or use cases, there's probably one thing they're focused on, and, and that's kind of like the sweet spot of what they're trying to achieve. Again, depends what they're trying to do, and it could be, go very bold and very wide first. I think what you get with a large organization, and I often like I, I mentor quite a few people, and I kind of say, look, you might look at something like a or a Thompson or a large organization like a law firm and go, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard. You've got to bring a lot of different people on side and stakeholders, et cetera. I say you learn a lot from that. So one is stakeholder management and trying to find that commonality within people and trying to find the big pain point. And that pain point can be huge. You know, it can be like, you know, making a law firm more efficient, making a law firm more attractive to users. And you've got this amazing client base at Lexis, at iManage, at Reed Smith. You know, you're not struggling to get in front of the world's biggest organizations to discuss what they need and what they're trying to do because your lawyers do that work or they are your clients. So that's one major thing. The other thing is often that, you know, you look at a startup, Yes, they might be more nimble and, and fast, but their resources aren't as, as big. So, you know, I worked on projects at Lexus. I work on projects that I manage where I've got six, eight, ten development teams running. And and so ultimately, you can solve lots of different problems. They have to come together and coordination's hard. And how do you deliver something, which is the, the sum total of eight development teams plus two data science teams plus a load of people doing something? And then I guess the other one, which is really interesting, is there are pains of it, but you're often building on a platform where you've kind of got a lot of stuff on a silver platter. Like if you're at Lexis, you have very well marked up data, so you don't have to go through two years of marking up the data to do the really interesting pieces. You've got judges marked up and case names marked up and catchwords and all these amazing things you could do. The challenge is organization, and and you know that's the same as a law firm, that's the same as a large corporate, that's the same as different legal tech, large legal tech. So I often, you know, there's definitely a tour of duty to do through it. And if you like it, like I do, you enjoy it and and find your way. There are frustrations. I I think I would, I'll be perfectly frank, I think I would struggle in a startup because it would be a little bit shortcutting. And I kind of always see the next big thing that's going to cause me a problem and try to get ahead of it. So I think there are people either side. And I think it's interesting when startups get bought by large organizations, watching the founder and the team kind of build themselves into a large organization. That's kind of what we've been through with Raven coming into iManage.
0: Right. So before you got to Raven and iManage, you spent some time with Reed Smith and their innovation group. Why make the move to, Reed Smith is a great law firm, uh, but why make the move from a corporate to a law firm?
1: To to the last point, I, I'll be honest here. I found it quite frustrating by the end of trying to coordinate all these things across a large organisation. And I was doing some work on, as you know, on kind of changing roles in legal. Back in 2016, I was researching. I did a presentation. That kind of built out of a reinvent presentation back in 2014, 13, 14 into like new roles in law firms. I think your firm was one of the people that was one of had some of those new roles, like legal engineer and uh, and, and all of those things. And so I was researching that, and I saw one called Innovation Manager, and I actually just, ironically, I just um, messaged the recruitment person saying, what is it? And I almost just wanted the CV, <laughs> you know, the spec <laughs> to put into my research, and then I ended up like sitting with a spec going, I'd be a bit stupid not to apply for this. Back in the early days of kind of what were Innovation Managers in, in law firms, and I ended up having the, the two of the nicest interviews I've ever had with four sets of really, really clever people, head of knowledge, head of training and learning head of HR um, and head of pricing, I think it was. And I really enjoyed the interviews. They were just exploring the people and the candidates and trying to find the right fit for their initiative. And I got offered it and just felt like it was a really good opportunity to see it from the other side, like actually genuinely, instead of asking questions and, you know, going and doing interviews, actually be on the inside and see it from the inside, see the politics from the inside, see the people from the inside, see the dynamic of how practice groups worked. So I think I moved for no pay rise. I just went over and it was just that right moment in time to go and try something different. What did you learn by working in a law firm? I know this sounds a little bit weird. I found it quite entrepreneurial. And the reason why I found it quite entrepreneurial was the big structural level stuff was difficult. You're in a partnership, you know, you've got, it's a strange, it's a strange-ish model for Ownership and you know kind of reinvestment etc., which is kind of what you're used to from the corporate. But what I found was that an individual partner had a big enough book of work and a big enough client set that you could go off and do something quite small. And you could look at that, and as long as you had the mindset that we discussed, like okay, I'm not just going to take one partner's word for it. What I'm going to do is speak to the four other partners who are in exactly the same area and say, look, you're trying this partner's trying to do this. I find that you could get some stuff done quite quickly. It wasn't like write a business case. What's going to happen? How do I go to market immediately? How do I make it really, really big? I found you could actually, you could be quite entrepreneurial with quite a big book of work, you know, and you could suddenly say, okay, let's try something small here. Let's take document automation and start to think about this partner does a lot of this. We could probably turn that round quite quickly into a slightly automated process where they could repeat this quite quickly. But you didn't have to go out to everyone like you do in a corporate and build a big business case and wait two years. So I actually found it quite entrepreneurial, especially with a firm like Reed Smith, you know, probably like yours as well. It's just like where they've already got some bits in place. They've already got the document management system. They've got a collaboration tool. They've got automation in process. And kind of what you're doing is trying to contextualize it to an individual practice or an individual person in there who will then influence other people. So I find it a little bit liberating after the large corporate trying to make the big initiative happen, et cetera, et cetera. So it's funny, really, because you don't expect that answer. But I found it quite liberating. And I guess the other one was just as an innovation person, it's fascinating looking at the practice groups and like genuinely looking at it going, okay, here's the one which I expected. I don't know, real estate. But here is shipping and finance, and here is media and entertainment, and just letting the partners introduce you to like that industry and seeing what changes were going on and what legal was being asked for. And I just found that genuinely fascinating.
0: Yeah, you were hitting that that job at an interesting moment in the evolution of sort of the innovation space in law firms, so that had to be cool as well. You then moved to iManage. Tell us about that move and what you do for uh, iManage. And we got involved with iManage just to be transparent. We started working with Raven back when Raven was uh, still a startup, and then began the full implementation of it after it got purchased by Manage. So we've had the pleasure of working with you guys for a while now, and it's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, you guys have done a couple of couple of different projects with us as well, as you said, before before the acquisition and, and, and post the acquisition. So yeah, as I said, a pleasure working with your teams as well, who are very on top of their game in, in terms of like what you're trying to achieve and the outcomes. So yeah, no, I um, though I was. I think we did we did a couple of projects with Raven, Matt Reed Smith as well. Uh, the couple of with um, my former boss, who's now left there as well, Lucy Lucy Dillon, who was the Chief Technology Officer at, at Reed Smith, who was my boss in the innovation role. But yeah, no, I um, I kind of fascinated by search still. So I kind of just remains findability is currently the word we're using, but fundamental to that is search and and data because search works well with data. And, and they that tied into kind of a lot of around knowledge management and best practice and, and, and use of the things which go behind many of the tools like automation and decision logic tools, etc. But I was approached or started talking to um, a couple of people at iManage during that time period. One was Dan Carmel, who's the Chief Strategy Officer now or Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer now at iManage and, and, and longtime iManage person. We had a long conversation in Chicago about productization ironically, Stephen, which was kind of like how to take this startup and turn it into something that could be productized, that could be repeatable. And then which Raven wasn't. Raven was you know, a series of the most fascinating projects that had been done. They had a bit of a core of a search engine and a bit of a core of extraction, but they were largely doing very custom work for different law firms. And now having seen those projects from the inside, they're fascinating. They're not, some of them are not productizable. <laughs> they were genuinely interesting things that got done. And I'm sure you guys were did some genuinely interesting stuff as well. But we got to the point that I kind of got brought in to look after knowledge management, like the Raven, turning Raven into a product within iManage. And there's been a bit of a journey and we had a pandemic in the middle of it, which, which made for some interesting ways of working at a global tech company.
0: I can imagine.
1: But kind of a large approach now is I work on search and findability across the iManage platform. So whether you're in the document management system or you're in a knowledge system that we provide, how do I just find something like find a clause, find a document, find a person, et cetera? And that's a big thing that people turn to in terms of where documents and matters, et cetera, are. I, I also look after how we then layer on knowledge management on top of that. So whether that be analytical knowledge management, like the US loves to do, you know, compare matters, compare experts, um, et cetera, or whether it's more on, you know, kind of what I call a European style, which is around curated documents, curated best practice, curated templates and and, and that piece. So how we do that. And then the, the last side, which is, it's a fun area, but it's it's difficult. It's kind of what do you do with this kind of extraction, classification of content? What does that lead to? What use cases does that lead to? And I still think we're on a bit of a journey there about we're getting to the point where we can extract stuff and we can classify stuff. But what does that actually drive in law firms? Is that more discoverability? Is that better practice? Is that really interesting stuff lawyers could do with data? I don't think the answer's out there. I think We've had an interesting decade also around contract extraction and et cetera. But, you know, maybe turn the question back to you. Like, What do you see in terms of that technology being used in practice for better efficient delivery of legal services or lawyers looking in contracts for dangerous stuff and being more proactive? I think we have technology. I'm not quite sure we have the use cases fully delivered yet.
0: Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting challenge for us in using Raven or any of its, we use a number of products And it's the diversity of information you're searching that poses the challenge, right? As you're trying to extract certain core parts of information, it's one thing when you're operating from a base of a thousand roughly equivalent contracts or pieces of discovery. But a lot of the work, certainly we do, is with a wide variety of unstructured information that you're asking the systems to do something that they're just not quite able to do yet. And to me, that's the next challenge is how do you teach these systems to get ever more granular and ever more focused on a diverse data set?
1: And I think it's, you know, there's a lot of interesting points in there about where I think you know, we worked with you and, and you know, we, we go from everything from machine learning based approaches to rules based pieces, you know, like, hey, if everything's got reasonably the same words, don't apply machine learning to it, apply rules-based approaches. And I think it's, you know, there's a toolkit, but I think the other one that we've ended up being in is, like, it's almost like a review process on top of that, you know, and, and that goes into where do lawyers interpret things and where do lawyers add value on top of that information? And I think sometimes we get a bit lost on, hey, the machine should just be able to learn everything and, and basically read into it. Whereas risk, you know, I, I look at competitive ones as well. I don't think anyone's really got to risk scoring. You know, hi, hey, I could pull this out. It's in this type of document with this type of client, but do I really want to apply a risk to it and say, this is risky to this client? And a lot of that still is, you know, put that piece of information in front of a lawyer and they will tell you, now, without having to read 45 pages to find it in the first place, they will apply that kind of like you know human interpretive layer on. And will the machine how 2030, 2035 before a machine can replace that or or ever?
0: Yeah, you know it's it's an interesting example because it's part of our lived experience to convince lawyers that the technology is not perfect and is not going to replace you and is not going to make that risk analysis. But if you can have your three attorneys review 300 clauses out of a base of 5,000 contracts, as opposed to having 100 lawyers looking through those 5,000 contracts looking for the clauses, you've saved the client an enormous amount of time and money and have driven a lot of efficiency. And that's been a big part of the change process, process getting people to understand how the human side interacts with the technology side to create a more efficient overall solution set for the client.
1: I think it's also that the one, I mean, this was a bit Reed Smith and then into iManage was was also like getting them to think about data and data structures and think about, let's say you were doing a huge review, whether it was by humans or with machines or the combination of both, and you're pulling out, like you think about the problem, which might be mergers and acquisitions or an merger and acquisition. And then you like, you decide you're going to pull out Let's make up a number: 27 data points that are going to help your lawyers be better at applying that final thing, saying should you buy the company, should you not, what should you do with it later, etc. You're doing that review anyway, and what happens if you suddenly said, well, you know, in six in a year's time after the acquisition, some other data points might be really valuable about did you hit the target, did you think about restructuring the company after the acquisition? But you're doing it now. And what happens if you, you know, adding an extra six data points to my 27 would get you to 33. Those six data points will be really useful for you in interacting with that client over the next year, two years, three years, will drive more business development opportunities, will make that client think that you're really helping them with the long-term strategy. And so trying to think about when you've got this, let's say you've got a big document review in front of you. What should you extract and not just for the task straight in hand, which you're getting paid for, but how you might add value to the client over the next two years after they acquire the company and suddenly starting to think about data in a bigger, longer cycle and thinking about it as a value add service that you can sell back to the client or that drives your own BD. And sometimes everyone's really, you know, everyone's in the M&A and they had to do it in an Excel file, which got shared traditionally. And they didn't think about that because that was a pain. But now potentially you've got this opportunity to drive a longer term relationship with the client because of that data.
0: That's an interesting mindset uh, evolution, isn't it, among the users to understand both the short term, but looking at the long term application of, of data, not something lawyers are usually the great lawyers are very good at it naturally, but it doesn't come naturally to a lot of lawyers.
1: I always kind of looked at it as a kind of funny cycle um, when I was at Reed Smith. And I talked to some of the great lawyers and what they look at it is a cycle of three stages. One stage is here's the legal work, going to get the thing done, you know, M&A, change, whatever it might be. Big legal technology change. Then it was the end cycle, with, which is like three, four years later, when their advice may have been followed, may not have been followed, and then it ends up in something bad like litigation or something like that, right. where it, it's gone wrong. And there's this bit in the middle where you don't know. You, know, you could advise, here's your employment contracts your employment contract should be like this. And if you carry on doing them within this playbook, you won't get in trouble in the future. And you maybe have to restructure and use employment contracts as a tool. And then five years later, there's a massive litigation because everyone's got weird contracts and something happened and etc. And in the middle, what you didn't see was that the contracts started diverging away from what the lawyer said they should be. And it's just that middle bit. It's just fascinating, right? That's the bit where you could be trusted ca- lawyers, could be trusted counsels. They could be doing a one-year, every-year retro on where are the contracts right now. And you could be talking to your client all the time and potentially avoiding the litigation at the end. Now, we could joke about whether the lawyers really want to avoid the litigation at the end <laughs> that's hugely valuable. but
0: Yeah, but the great lawyers usually do.
1: Yeah. In terms of legal- delivering legal services differently – we should probably be preventative. And I think data eventually gets you to indicators where things may not be going quite right. And I think great lawyers would look at that as an amazing opportunity to course correct things.
0: Absolutely. Well, Alex, we've, we've run a bit over. I, uh, I know it's, it's getting late over there. I want to express my thanks to you for the conversation. It's been fascinating. I could keep this going for a long time, but thank you for making time.
1: No, thank you, really enjoyed that.
0: As did I. Have a good night.
1: I will do. Thank you, Stephen.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.